0: It is my great pleasure to introduce tonight's moderator and my friend, Joe Matthews. Joe Matthews is the California and Innovation Editor at Zocalo Public Square. He has been a reporter for the LA Times, the Wall Street Journal,
1: the Baltimore Sun, and he currently writes the weekly Connecting California column for Zocalo. Please give a warm welcome to our guests. Uh, Thanks, Moira. Thanks to all of you for being here. Um, And uh, our question tonight is, uh, how can LA use its past to build a better future? Um, LA's future, it's a high stakes game. Uh, There's a LA philosopher who said, Los Angeles is a microcosm of the United States. If LA falls, the country falls. Anyone know who that is? No, a hint, Crenshaw High School graduate, uh, alumnus, alumnus. No, it's iced tea. Ice tea said that. <laughs> um, so um, it's LA's future is important. Um, the gentleman uh, here with me, Zev Zieroskovsky, is very important. I, I, it's usually bad practice at a social event to start with a very um, long bio. Um, I try to avoid it, get right into it. But I think tonight I'm going to make an exception, um, in part because um, uh, Zev has been in public life here literally since before I was born. Um, <laughs> And also, I think it's be useful to all of you to sort of, we're going to cover a lot of ground to think about all the different things. And this is a highly amended um, um, sort of list. Um, Zeb's born and raised in Los Angeles, He's a Fairfax High and UCLA guy, BA in economics and history, uh, a master's in British imperial history. Does that um, help you uh, when you're fighting with power hungry sheriffs or something? <laughs> um, uh, Zev is now the director of the Los Angeles uh, Initiative at UCLA Luskin School of Public Affairs and Department of History. Um, and he's um, focusing at the intersection of policy, politics, and history for LA, uh, the Center for History and Policy, as it's called. Um, he spent four decades as an elected official, a politician. Um, uh, every issue you can imagine here in, in our city and county, transportation, environment, healthcare, cultural arts, law enforcement, housing homelessness, took on LAPD over, um, over excessive force and improper spying, um, authored in the city, authored two landmark ballot initiatives. One was an anti-density uh, measure uh, in the 80s, which we may ask you about, um, and uh, another, um, which uh, uh, essentially banned oil drilling along the city's coastline. That's why, when I mean, you're in the Palisades, you're not looking at oil derricks. Um, The LA Times actually wrote that that of his time in City Hall that he was more often than not a dominant player in virtually every municipal initiative of note since he joined the City Council. Then in 1994, because he's glutton for punishment, Zev was elected to the five member LA County Board of Supervisors, represented the west part of the county. He did um, five terms on the board's third district representative. So like, um, I guess until recently, like Elizabeth Warren and Amy Klobuchar, you've never lost an election, is that right? Undefeated. Yeah, that's all right. Um, um, and uh, you were term limited out at the end of uh, 2014. Um, at the bo- on, on the Board of Supervisors, you you did all, all sorts of issues. Just to mention a few big park bond in 1996, one of the biggest we've had in terms of protecting a lot of park and rural open space and urban parks throughout the county, a trauma measure on hospitals. And then I think um, since we're standing over the, uh, sitting here over the Metro Center, um, You get a lot of credit for the Orange Line busway in the Valley, the Expo Line, uh, and the Purple Line extension, which will be done when? Uh, In your lifetime. Oh, thank you. (laughs) (laughs) Fair enough. Um, After the MLK uh, Junior Hospital in South L.A. closed, um, Zev was the person who put together the partnership between the University of California and L.A. County. Uh, that allowed to be reopened. Um, and then I think what's also very unusual, um, uh, highly unusual for an American politician, um, Zeb's a real leader in the arts. Um, I, I mean, it's, it's something that's very much distinguished him. Um, he championed efforts to rebuild and modernize the world-famous Hollywood, Hollywood Bowl amphitheater, instrumental in the development of Disney Hall, um, and, and then very important to the development of things like LACMA, the Museum of Natural History, and the San Fernando Valley Performing Arts Center. So that's just, that's a very highly abridged version of the bio, and, and since it's an arts thing, I wanna, I wanna make this conversation, we gotta marry the past and the future, so I wanna give this sort of a movie set up. Um, there was a movie last year, an Ang Lee film called Gemini Man, with Will Smith, you missed it. It was an awful box office bomb. I may have been the only person who saw it. Um, and I loved it. And the film idea, the plot is that it takes a, Will Smith is an older hitman who ends up being chased around and targeted through so, so cloning time travel thing by a younger version of himself. So that's what I want to do tonight. Same plot, okay? <laughs> We're going to go back in time and bring out of... You know, through it's sort of a disco ball time machine, 1975. We're going to bring a, you know, uh, idealistic, passionate, maybe a little bit of an ego, 26-year-old, okay, who somehow beats Roz, Roz, knocks out Roz Wyman in the first round of the election, a formidable city councilwoman who gets a lot of credit for bringing the Dodgers here. Uh, and then beats a you know, Brad, a Tom Bradley aide named Francis Savage and gets elected um, to the city council at the age of twenty six okay um, And you know this is a different time that the city of four million now had two point eight million then um, you know the our county now ten million had seven million people then we We're a little smaller. Uh, Rhinestone Cowboy by Glenn Campbell was the number one song in America the week you were elected um, and you know, and there wasn't, any, um, there wasn't any purple line or orange line or expo line. Our port wasn't even bigger than New York's yet. Um, and so this, we bring this 26-year-old in here to talk to us, and you get to talk to him. Um, and he's 26. He's got, you know, uh, 50 years, or maybe with radical life extension, a 100-year political career ahead of him to think about the future. And this 26-year-old you... Um, you know, has to deal with today's Los Angeles, the one that you've contributed to to building for good parts and maybe some not so good parts. Mm -hmm. Um, I want to know what you tell him. And and the first question is, would you actually tell him to run for office like you did? I mean, would that make sense? Or would would he be better off going to work for, I don't know, know, a labor union or... You know, something like the Los Angeles Alliance for the New Economy, Lane, uh, Think Tank, or a group like Community Coalition in South L.A. Would, would, is that the way, to running for office and serving in the council, is that the way to, to if you're trying to, you want to make a big impact and really change this place, is that where, where it's done now? Well, um, yeah, I
0: didn't come out of nowhere uh, in, yeah. in 1975. I, I had spent the better part of my college, of my entire collegiate career and then several years after that, uh, promoting human rights, Jews in the Soviet Union, and fighting this improbable battle uh, for free emigration, which was ultimately successful long after I left that, that battle, uh, I was involved in politics and uh, worked for the McGovern for President campaign in yeah. 1972, uh, and uh, walked precincts in 1968 for Gene McCarthy, uh, and uh, so I, I, I was, I, and I'm often asked that question by some of my students and, and non-students who come to see me. You know, they want to they want to be involved in politics. How do I get involved? I said, well, first of all, uh, get involved in your community. Uh, doesn't matter what it is, but but you just you don't make these lateral moves from uh, from birth into a an elected office. Uh, it, it, I I've always been a believer that. Uh, that the public is a lot smarter than most politicians give them credit for. They have a good BS sniffing meter about people. Uh, and um, and, I, and I, do, I do believe that and people are, are very discriminating. So what, they, what they're looking for, authenticity is not a new phenomenon uh, in getting elected to anything. I mean, we hear about it all the time. This guy or this gal is authentic and so that's why they're building momentum. Uh, people are always looking for authenticity. They want they want to see that you stand for something and that you're willing to fight for something. If you're willing to fight for something, then they figure that you're going to be willing to fight for them. And so my advice to a 26-year-old kid, or let me put it differently, an 18-year-old kid who might have had a, an interest in politics, uh, is to do something with your life before before you run for office. Now, I'll tell you what you probably don't know Uh, is that I never had any interest in running for office. Uh, That was something that was a total uh, lark. Uh, My ambition in politics was to be a congressional staffer on Capitol Hill. I had gone to Washington many times to lobby for human rights legislation. I I loved the action. I loved going door-to-door, office-to-office, lobbying for, for, uh, for legislation. Um, and I just thought it would be the greatest thing in the world, this is when I was 18, 19, 20, 21, to, to be able to work on Capitol Hill. Never would have occurred to me to actually run for office. Um, and then at, over this period of time when uh, my predecessor, uh, Ed Edelman, who was my predecessor both in the city council and in the board of supervisors, when Ed got elected to the board and a vacancy was created in the city council, a bunch of my friends from college said, why don't, why don't you think about running? And I said I don't know anything about the city, uh, and, and and I'm not really interested in city stuff. I'm interested in foreign policy and national stuff. And uh, the more I thought about it, and my wife and I talked about it, and we were newly married a couple of years, married at the time, and and she said, uh, you know, if you're going to do it, now's the time to do it. We don't have any kids. We can afford it. You can take a leave of absence from, you know, your job, and and uh, and so. Uh, and, and then when you lose, uh, you can go back to work. <laughs> and uh, actually, the, the plan was for me to go to uh, business school at UCLA. I'd actually been admitted to business school in the fall for the fall of 1974. When I decided to run, I sent a letter in the summer of '74 to UCLA saying I'd like to have a deferment for admission to the. You know the academic year of '75, starting in '75. and I got a letter back saying, you know, request granted, and I assumed that that if I decided to go back to business school, that that letter, if I could find it, would still be good, and I could get, <laughs> you know, get an MBA. But funny thing happened on the way to my MBA. Uh, thank God, uh, I, I got elected, and uh, uh, and, and it was uh, to show how improbable the whole thing was. My first candidates forum. Which was in Westwood, the Westwood Homeowners Association, Westwood Homebee Homeowners Association. And there were nine candidates, and the first question was, What's your position on density? And they said, Well, we'll start with you, Mr. Yaroslavsky. And I said, Wait a minute, my name starts with Y. (laughs) Can't you start with? But I, I had no idea what what the president of the association was talking about when she talked about density. The only density I knew about was a density I learned in chemistry class at Fairfax High School. Uh, and so I, I said, uh, what do you mean by that? And, uh, and she explained it. I said, oh, density. And uh, she came up to me afterwards and she said, you know, you've earned my vote because you didn't try to fake it. When when you didn't know something and uh, and you, and you asked and that was that's a very good sign so that's the way this whole improbable career started and uh, I learned I, I always learned by getting thrown in you know, I learned to swim by getting thrown into the pool and either I sank or I or I learned to swim
2: but
1: could someone like you get elected today yes. and to the council just It'd like be a that.
0: little different a little more difficult uh, it's you a little need richer different.
1: friends right.
0: Well, you, you know, money is is necessary, but it's not sufficient, as uh, we see in every election. And uh, there have been some people who have uh, who have beat the odds. Uh, David Rue, who's uh, the most recent that I would put in that category, is a Korean-American uh, who won in a district that is close to 90% Anglo, represents uh, Sherman Oaks, Las Feliz, Sunset Plaza, Hancock Park, not exactly. Uh, now, if he had asked me for my advice, I would have said probably not the district you want to run in. Uh, but he did, and uh, and he snuck into the runoff uh, as I did when I first ran. And uh, and I he asked for my advice, and I said, go to Sherman Oaks, which is 35, 40 percent of the district, and knock on every door you can knock on, and meet as many people as you can, so they can look at you and see that that you're, you're you, that you're. You, no horns growing out of your head that you're you're a uh, uh you're just like them and you care about their issues and let them see you up front and he did he walked door to door some pl- sometimes going to the same door twice and he was able to win that was a now he had more money than i had even as a pre- accounting for inflation he had a good base uh and he had worked in Yvonne Burke's office and he had done some work in the community for a mental health uh service agency um but the odds of him winning were slim. I'll get t- give you another one in the city council, Mitch O'Farrell. He ran against labor. The labor unions endorsed another candidate, one of their own. Um, he, he was a deputy for Eric Garcetti. To the best of my knowledge, Eric did not endorse him for his seat. And Mitch- uh, Still it, So it can be done. It, it, it can be done, but it's, it's, it's rare. Politics has changed in, in, in Los Angeles uh, in the last 40 years. Uh, in you know, when I ran for the city, when I entered the city council, there were five Republicans on the city council, and two Democrats who voted like Republicans. And uh, it's a different ball game then. And uh, and by the way, I think it was—I don't want to say better—but I thought it was. It, it was we, we produced some. We, first of all, we had debates on the council. We actually we actually had divided votes on the council, not backroom. And uh, I'm not. Specifically, talk about this council, but the council the last 25 years where decisions are basically everything is consensus. And they can be consensus because it's almost like a one party state. In those days, it was, everybody was different. Um, I mean, I can go down, you know, Benny, uh, what's his name? Uh, Ernani Bernardi was, was a saxophonist from, from the Benny Goodman Orchestra. Uh, Don Lorenzen was a mortician. Uh, Joel Wax was a lawyer. I was a community activist. Uh, and, and so forth, and everybody had had a life before they got there in in some fashion, and they came with different worldviews. And so when we had to pass a rent control law in 1978, in the middle of the explosion, the uh, the, the rapidly escalating real estate and rents, uh, uh, real estate values and rents are two sides of the same coin. We had to make a comp- compromises with with essentially seven Republicans, five Republicans, and two or three people who didn't. Want to vote for this thing, but they they did, and we you know, and you produce good results when you have different points of view.
1: Let me. Um, there's a famous, or at least famous amongst the slice of Los Angeles that would follow politics closely, exchange where Mayor Bradley, after you pull off this upset, Mayor Tom Bradley, um, congratulates congratulates you on joining right. the establishment.
0: It was it was at my swearing in on yes. June 10th, 1975. Tom and you Bradley, and you answered. Tom Bradley said. Uh, Because I, I, uh, why did I win? You can be hard work, really good looks, (laughs) Uh, and uh, and I was lucky. I I was elected in 1975, which was eight or nine months after Nixon resigned, and there was a real anti-establishment wave that had swept the country, and certainly swept Los Angeles, and certainly swept the west side of Los Angeles, where my district was. So when I defeated Roz, who became a very good friend, and remains a good friend of mine to this day, uh, by 359 votes in the primary, um, she uh, endorsed me uh, after a decent interval. And uh, and, and, and uh, the I'm lost my train of thought. now. That's all right. Isn't? Well, I was going to ask but, you, you, but, but, you. Oh, so Brad. So, so I say, I was the quintessential anti-establishment candidate. I ran against the establishment. That was that. And I was the personification of anti-establishment. My hair was not, you know, uh, it was not above my ears. My clothes were baggy. Uh, I, my car was smashed up. Uh, I was the personification of anti-establishment. So when I get sworn in, Tom Bradley says to me, says, you know, in front of. 250 of my closest friends, uh, welcome to the establishment, <laughs> and uh, or you you are now part of the establishment. Those yeah. were his exact words, and I when I got up to speak, I said, Tom, uh, I may be uh, I may be part of the establishment, but the establishment is not part of me, and uh, and I'm happy to say, and I think uh, when one of the last articles written about me when I was in office. Uh, made reference to, you know I didn't lose my cantankerous kind of anti-establishment view. I was always uh, looking at, there's a, there a quote that I live by. Yeah. Let me
2: yeah.
0: give you my yeah. best, my favorite quote. There's a, a, I don't get a chance to use British history very often. So <laughs> uh, this was a uh, 19th century British uh, historian and also a member of parliament for a time, Lord Thomas Macaulay, and he had this great Line. He said, No man is fit to govern great societies who hesitates about disobliging the few who have access to him for the sake of the many he will never see. And that became basically, you know, not the Ten Commandments, it became the One Commandment. Me and my staff, and I had great staff, uh, we were always about the people we would never see. And, we, and, and that is about as anti establishment as you can get, because it's uncharacteristic of the establishment to be about people you don't see, the marginalized, the mentally ill, uh, the economically marginalized, children who are abused, um, people who don't have the resources to hire a lobbyist or a lawyer or a consultant to go go lobby a, a, a politician. Uh, Harry Truman made, made this comment when he was president. He said, there are 40 million Americans who are represented by associations and federations and lobbyists. The other 140 million Americans are the responsibility of the president of the United States. And that was kind of the way I, I viewed my role. And uh, so I was, I was right in 1975, and I stuck to it the best I could.
1: I wanna ask you about establishment today and future. Yeah. The, the conventionalism is that we have a pretty weak Sort of establishment uh, uh, binds in the town. I mean, do you buy that? And do you? How do you think the establishment is likely to change going forward from here? I mean, we're certainly it's certainly more diverse in you know race so. and gender, but but is it is it likely to be different in other ways?
0: The establishment. Yeah,
1: here. To the extent um, it is. is it ever going to get any stronger to make it easier to do things in a faster way? Yeah,
0: you know, I'm, I'm, I'm reminded of Prince Charles when he was asked uh, when when he was when he announced the engagement with with Princess Diana. Uh, Are you in love? He was asked, and he says. Something to that effect, and he says, "Yes, whatever love means." Uh, and, uh, and I say the same thing about the establishment. I don't know what the establishment means. Uh, I didn't know it then. I mean, I, I knew it then, because it was the, you know I was up against you know all the you know the, the politicians and, and uh, the Chamber of Commerce and you know the Committee of 25, which was kind of phasing out at the time. I'm not even sure they existed by the time I got into office. Uh, but it, of course it's changed. Uh, labor is much more of a, a part of the establishment today than they ever were in 1975, uh, and uh, organized labor, and uh, they're part of it. I, I think the business community, frankly, is uh, a lot less influential as a cohesive force uh, than they were 40 years ago. Um, but that does, that's not to say that Particular interest groups within the business community, you know, will rise to the occasion when they want to de- protect their interests. Certainly, the real estate industry protects its interests. The apartment house industry spent millions to defeat a rent control law. Uh, uh, the state with tens of millions. Uh, so, th- when people's livelihoods or perceived livelihoods are threatened, you know, they come. They they come to the fore. Um, but Los Angeles, really, for most of my career, and certainly since, uh, when you want to get something done in, in LA in the old days, you go to you know a dozen or so people. We had corporations that were actually headquartered here, if you remember the, the good old days. Uh, so you'd go to ARCO, and you'd go to, you know, to the Carter Holly Hale, and you'd go to uh, you know, the gas company, or whoever it was, and, and you, you needed to put a committee together to pursue the Olympics, you went to the usual suspects, and so forth. Um, that's not so easy anymore. It, it's a much more, in a way, a, a much more democratic establishment. You know, they're, they're all over the place, and and we've lost all, just about all of our corporate headquarters uh, over over the last 25 years. Uh, now, uh, what's the what's the next 25 years going to look like? Uh, it's anybody's guess, but but things are changing. I mean, we're, we're, we're getting a share of the high-tech business now, and the biotech business has been a, a thing here for uh, a while. Uh, Silicon Beach uh, is not the only place where you have high-tech, and uh, biotech in, in the San Fernando Valley and Silmar and Santa Clarita, uh, not to mention uh, at uh, uh, the Harbor UCLA campus and some other places. Um, in fact, we're, we're, we're finding more and more people uh, moving into Los Angeles uh, who are earning uh, high salaries and they're driving, they're gentrifying neighborhoods and driving people who are of lower income out of the city and out of the county for that matter. Uh, it's, it's a fact, it's happening, and uh, it's one of the great challenges that we have. So nothing ever stands still, and uh, things are changing.
1: Let me ask about things that move uh, in transportation. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, to the 26-year-old we've transported through time, um, who wants to go into a career in in public service civic life, I mean, last fall, the mayors of Boston, Washington, DC, New York, and San Francisco all said, expressed envy in different ways of what LA has accomplished recently in public transit, you know? I mean, it, that's almost a head exploding sort of thing to think about, um, you know, with all the, the, the passing two ballot measures, tax measures, you know, these different rail lines coming on. I mean, what do you say to the person who's trying to start out and thinking about the next 25, 50 years of how, what, what do we need now? You know, we're building, you know, how do we, you know, how do we get these things to work? More people to ride them to, to, to make this transformation into being a transit mm-hmm. city because we're building this, but the ridership is not keeping up with the building, right?
0: No, not only is it not keeping up with the building, ridership is plummeting uh, yeah. in the public transit system. Uh, on the orange line, it hasn't plummeted. I haven't seen the figures the last year or two, but, um, but even when ridership in our public transit system was plummeting, uh, that was the one outlier. I'm very proud of that because I uh, spilled a lot of political blood over the Orange Line when, when we built it. Uh, the Orange Line is a, is is the busway. It's the most successful busway in in the United States.
1: From North Hollywood, West from North through the Hollywood, Valley, fourteen miles to
0: yeah. uh, Warner Center, and then from Warner Center up to Chatsworth to the MetroLink station in Chatsworth, and the the third prong of this system, which. I actually drew on a map uh, on a napkin. I drew the map of this on a napkin when Dick Reardon and I and Bob Hertzberg and Yvonne Burke were flying back from Curitiba, Brazil, where uh, a city designed by urban planners and urban architects, uh, the mayor of which was uh, Jaime Lerner. Uh, they they pioneered. I shouldn't say pioneered. They they, they used busways. Uh, to move their people. They couldn't afford subways, and they, they couldn't afford light rail, so they basically used busways, and the buses became what I coined light rail and rubber tires. And uh, and, and I, when we saw that, uh, we said that could work in LA, and in fact, it could work in the San Fernando Valley, and that's why we came up with that, with that line. Uh, but back to the, your question, uh, ridership is down. Um, Nobody knows exactly why. Everybody has a theory. Uh, I have my own theory. Uh, one of the things that we don't do enough of in government, and, uh, and I would say Metro, uh, in my day, I haven't been there in five years, so I'm not going to um, criticize them, but we, we didn't spend enough time trying to ask our customers what they wanted. You know, we, we we ask contractors what they can do. We ask uh, urban planners what they think is the best thing. And you, know, you build density around transit stations. You can do this. You could do that. We never ask the people who are going to ride it. And why are we surprised that ridership is down when we're not really speaking to our customers? And by the way, I could say that about homelessness. I could say that about virtually every everything we do is is government. Thinks like it, 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 It's one of the hardest things for government not to do is we think we're a monopoly because we are a monopoly. We're the only game in town. If you're the city council of El Monte, you're the only city government in El Monte, and you get to do what you want to do. The only thing that holds you back is you might be defeated at your next election. Um, so it's really critical that we find out from people what they're what they're looking for. Um, I think what. You know, part of the problem in Los Angeles is that we are, you know, we were developed in, in a sprawling manner. Uh, the word suburb uh, was invented here, uh, and and the word exurb, I suspect, was invented here. Uh, and uh, I used to explain this to my constituents because uh, a picture is worth a thousand words. If you take a compass, you know, your old geometry compass. You have a map of Paris, France on your table, and you put the needle of the compass at the Eiffel Tower, and you draw a circle that's about seven miles radius, you pretty much have all of Paris within that circle. You do the same thing at Big Ben in London, and you have a big chunk, the majority of London, is inside that circle. You put a, the compass needle on a map of Los Angeles with a needle at City Hall, and you draw a seven-mile radius circle, you don't even get to La Brea. Which is another way to say uh, that there's a, you know, that, that even though we are dense, in many, West Hollywood is one of the densest cities in the country. I believe it's denser, I was told by the city manager some years ago, denser than Manhattan in that 1.5 mile square city. Uh, but basically Southern California is is spread out. So when you you build a, a one mile long subway or a segment of, of subway for one mile at, what is now a cost of probably $600, $700 million a mile, you reach this many people. In New York or in Hong Kong or in Paris, you build a mile, you're reaching this many people, which is why we don't build subways everywhere. And one of the yeah. initiatives that I uh, yeah. so put I on the ballot about that. back in yeah. '98 was, was to, at a time when the MTA was on the verge of bankruptcy, when the FBI had... Ver- uh, Uh, this is for illustrative purposes, opened a substation at the the MTA headquarters uh, because of corruption problems, Uh, and everybody wanted a subway. People in Woodland Hills wanted a subway. People in Pasadena wanted a subway. Well, we couldn't build a subway everywhere, and you had to prioritize. You had to decide where you're going to build subways and where you're not going to build subways. I couldn't convince anybody of that, and uh, I launched an initiative, very controversial, with the powers that be with the establishment, not controversial at all with the public. Public voted two to one in favor of this to prevent the use of sales tax, the transit sales tax money for subway construction, not light rail, not elevated rail, but subway construction until we got our act together. And for 10 years, we spent our time reconnecting with the general public, um, reclaiming a, a decent reputation so that by, that was in 1998, so that by 2008, when Antonio Villaraigosa and I and uh, former Assemblyman Richard Katz, all of us were on the MTA board together, decided to launch Measure R, which was the uh, the, ha- the
1: the the original half cent. Not tax the original,
0: the, the, the third of four. Oh, the third. That's right. Right. That's right. There were two back in the 80s and 90s. Um, we, had, you know, we did some public opinion surveys to see whether we had re- rehabilitated our reputation, and we had. And it was only because we were able to get our finances together, and we didn't, we didn't have these orgies of subway construction. And so now what you see, and then Measure, measure M in 2016, uh, which was led by uh, Mayor Garcetti, uh, so you now have two cents of your sales tax there are four half-cent sales taxes that are earmarked for transportation. One that was approved in 1980, one that was approved in 1990, one in 2008, and one in 2016. So 20 percent, roughly, of your sales tax is going to build a transportation system. That's why. Do we need more of that? Well, you know that. First of all, I don't think we have to answer that question today because uh, we have our hands full trying to build what, what we have. Uh, but there there's going to have to be a. Uh, you know, a a reckoning uh, of is this is this really the future uh, of transportation? You know, when people talk about uh, driverless cars and you know everything is going to be computerized, I've never been much of a, a believer in this, but I wasn't a believer in the computers either. So don't don't trust me. Uh, <laughs> uh, and I wish the com- and I really wish the uh, iPhone would would disappear. It's, uh, it's become a terrible uh, crutch, but. Uh, but he, here's the deal. Uh, we, w- before we spend, spend hundreds of billions of dollars continuing down this road, uh, we've got to figure out whether it's going to be obsolete before we cut the ribbon on it. And I don't know the answer to that question. I, I do know enough to ask the question. And I think, uh, I think a lot of people are asking that question. Um, having said that, uh, I can tell you, you mentioned the purple line in your introduction, uh, that today uh, the federal government, the Department of Transportation announced that it is funding the third phase uh, $1.2 billion as part of a full funding grant agreement for the third phase of the purple line from Century City to, to the West LA VA. And that's a huge deal. That means that uh, we will see it probably, you know, certainly before the 2028 Olympics. Hopefully by 2026. I don't know if that's exactly. You got to get right. it
1: through Beverly Hills. It'll get through Beverly Hills. It'll, it'll through uh, Beverly okay.
0: Hills. Uh, I mean, that, that is that is the biggest, <laughs> the, the, the biggest injustice that the city, the school district of Beverly Hills, has done to its taxpayers is to spend 17 million dollars fighting the fighting Metro. Uh, against the subway going under its city, and, and they have lost every single, at every single turn, and they continue to spend money like, like it's going out of style. And that school system is not doing very well, and they can hardly afford to spend that kind of money. But anyway, it'll get okay. through there. Yeah.
1: Let's, let's switch to a, a, you know, an easy, non-controversial topic. No, oh, um, right. Housing and homelessness. Yeah. Um, so um, um, your critics, who I've talked to in preparing for this, ask me to ask you directly. You know, you are responsible for one of the great density limits Mm -hmm. here in Los Angeles in 1986. Prop you. Um, Do you regret that?
0: Absolutely not. And and let me me tell you, (laughs) my critics include uh, academics who have actually gotten their PhD theses approved uh, by other professors. Uh, and they're just wrong, and I'll tell you why. Uh, the, the 1986 Prop U, which Marvin Browdy and I co-authored, and we went to the people, we got signatures, we got it qualified for the ballot, did not have, did not affect housing, any residentially zoned properties in the city at all. It affected the stripped commercial streets that crisscross Los Angeles. Uh, streets like Melrose and Pico, and what used to be Brooklyn Avenue is now Cesar Chavez, and Eagle Rock Boulevard, and York Boulevard, and Eagle Rock, and Ventura Boulevard. Those are the, are the, uh, the and, and what that measure did was it reduced what is known as the floor to area ratio, uh, from one from three to one. You could build three square feet of building for every one square foot of land to one and a half to one, and it was all about commercial. And I, you know, it's only, and, and we wrote it in such a way that the city council could actually change it uh, if it chose to do so, uh, because all we did was change the nomenclature of 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 the zone. We called the zo- you know we said it affected this particular zone called C2-1. Uh, But if you change the name of the zone and change the the characteristics of that zone, you could do that. And in fact, that's exactly what the city council did at about the turn of the century. Uh, They changed the uh, the commercial zoning to what is called an RAS zone. Some of you who are in this business know what I'm talking about. It's it's a residential auxiliary services zone, which allowed you to build, uh, if you build ground floor retail, you could build housing above it. Now, the, the, the critics will tell you, uh, well, you, know, you could build residential in a commercial zone. And when we cut the commercial zone in half, uh, that, that cut residential development on the commercial zones in half. But I would invite you uh, to go down any commercial street in Los Angeles, except for the ones that have been built in the last 20 years, uh, and really the last 10 years. And th- let me put it this way, in 1986, there, you could count on two hands the number of residential buildings that existed on, re- on commercial streets in LA. I grew up on the corner of Martell and Melrose. There wasn't an apartment building within miles of that corner on Melrose, or on Fairfax, or on La Brea, and so forth. Now, as if I, if I told my staff over the, uh, when, when these debates come up, I said, if, if anybody would give me a memo that said that Prop U is the reason we have a housing shortage, I wouldn't accept it as, as, uh, as quality work. It, it would, it, I, I, And, and if, if I was on the doctoral committee of a professor, an aspiring professor who gave me that kind of garbage, uh, I wouldn't sign off on his dissertation or her dissertation. And let me tell you why. Prop U only applied to the city of Los Angeles. There are 87 other cities in the city of Los Angeles. So the first thing I would have said to an aspiring doctoral candidate, is uh, what happened to the other 87 cities? Because their argument is that, that uh, the number of applications for building permits for apartment buildings in Los Angeles went down, just plummeted after 1986. I can also tell you that gang-related homicides went up after 1986. Neither one of them had anything to do with Prop U. <laughs> and the question I would have asked that person, and I asked mm. the critics, you should ask them this, is what happened in Culver City, what happened in El Monte, in West Covina, in Palmdale, in the city of San Fernando, you named the city, Pasadena, Long Beach. How many apartment buildings were built between 1986 and 2000 on commercial streets in those cities? Nada, or virtually nada. Because the, the reason it, 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 is that the vacancy rate in Los Angeles County... In the whole region, this, the L.A. Long Beach statistical metropolitan statistical area, the vacancy rate between 1986 and, ni- and 2000 went from 2.9 percent in 1986, which is, a, you know, a, a, a shortage, to 8.9 percent in 1999, which is a surplus of housing. And the reason that happened is because there were three recessions during that period. People were leaving town to get jobs in Texas and Arizona, et cetera. So Prop U, it's a long defense, but I, uh, I don't have an opportunity before a, a, an audience of, of this caliber to uh, uh, to, to, men- to say this. Uh, Prop U had absolutely nothing to do with residential housing. And if you look back at the campaign we ran, and I've done that in the brochures, Okay. We, we were not trying to, to deal with housing. And in fact, I will tell you one yeah, last yeah. thing. Well, well yeah. yeah. <laughs> you gave me a long introduction, I'm going to yeah. give you a long answer. <laughs> uh, <laughs> is that uh, the reason we put Prop U on the ballot and the way, and, and what we, and the reason it resonated with the public, it mm-hmm. passed with 70% of the vote in L.A., is not because of residential it was because of commercial development. There were three poster childs for Prop U. The Beverly Center, the Westside Pavilion, and the Fujita Building in, in, on Ventura Boulevard in Encino. Those were the things that were driving people up a wall, and projects like that. And it depended on what neighborhood you were in. In Chatsworth, it was encroachment on the horse keeping zones. In, in San Pedro, it was, in Wilmington, it was the expansion of oil refineries. Everybody had their own shtick. I will tell you a very funny story. Um, my wife, uh, late wife, uh, Barbara, and I uh, went to, uh, took our family to four corners uh, Arizona, New Mexico, Utah and Colorado, Monument Valley. And just before you go into Monument Valley, there's a little town called Cayenta, Arizona. It's a small hole-in-the-wall place,'s got a gas station. It's got an urgent care center and some homes, some, some bungalows. And we stopped there for gas. And Barbara used to love to get hometown newspapers, local newspapers. And she brings—and this is in the summer of '86—we have have just qualified Prop U for the ballot. And she brings me this newspaper, the the Navajo Hopi Observer, the daily newspaper of of the two reservations. And she says, "Look at this headline." And the headline said, "Growth Control Sought in Kayenta." (laughs) <laughs> I, I'm looking around, and I'm like, what growth? <laughs> and it was about adding a, a, an additional examining room to the urgent care facility. That that was the big controversy. And a couple of weeks later, The Wall Street Journal does a story about Cayenta, Arizona, and they say that Cayenta is the most remote zip code in the continental United States.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And I'm, it's, it's my way of illustrating that Growth uh, and quality of life means different things to different people, and, uh, and and we were fighting in those days a city council that didn't that hardly met a developer it didn't like, and we couldn't we, we couldn't control it. And so we went over the heads of the mayor and the city council, and, uh, and we did it in a responsible way, in a measured way. And in fact, people came to us and said, why don't you cut residential zoning by the same half? And we said, no, we're not interested in stifling residential construction. Remember, there was no residential construction on commercial streets in those days to speak of. And the reason for it is you can make more money with a mini mall than with a seven story apartment building. That's, that's the bottom line.
1: So I, I, we don't have yeah. just a couple of minutes before we go to the audience, and I, um, I feel that we need to get to homelessness. I, uh, I don't know, again, to okay. like end of that 26 year old you. Yeah. I mean, you've dealt with that issue throughout your career. Um, there's an excellent paper you've done at the UCLA that looks at actually the history of some of our bigger spikes in, in housing problems, housing shortages and homelessness right after the Second World War. Uh, in the late 80s, and I'm sorry, in the late 70s, which gave, which led right. people to give the rent stabilization. Um, what do you say to the 26-year-old who arrives from 1975 now and looks at this situation? What, what, what? You know, what's the one-minute explanation of what, you know, what needs to be done?
0: <laughs> well, you were good until you said the one-minute explanation. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Uh, I'll tell you what I would tell them, uh, and, and I'll, I'll explain it with a story and I've become a believer in stories, a lot more than I am in regression analysis. Um, When my daughter was uh, studying at the Kennedy School uh, at Harvard for her master's in public policy, uh, between her first and second year of graduate school, she went to work for the city of Oakland. This is in 2002, I think, that summer. And one night she called me and she said, uh, just say hello, and she said, you know, Dad, I was walking up Telegraph Avenue today and I saw a homeless person sitting on the curb. So I sat down next to him, engaged him in conversation for about 20 minutes. And then I opened my purse and I was gonna give him a couple of dollars and the homeless person said to me, I don't want your money. You've given me something far more valuable. You've given me your time and your respect. And I said, well, I'm really touched. That's a very touching story. You know, trying to pretend like I was touched. And, um, (laughs) and And then she said, and Dad, while we were sitting there for 20 minutes, a couple of hundred people walked by us, and not one of them made eye contact with either one of us. And that got my attention, because I realized she could be talking about me. Um, Whenever I got off the Hollywood Freeway and the Melrose off-ramp, which is my off-ramp to go home if I'm coming on the 101, uh, I never made eye contact with the guy who had the the franchise, the homeless person who had the franchise at that off-ramp. Because if I did make eye contact with him, I'd have to do something. The human response when you make eye contact with somebody who needs help is to help most of the time. In my case, I didn't want to be put in that position, so I just didn't make eye contact with him. Not that I didn't care about the homeless. I got all the reports, got statistical analyses and all that stuff. I knew the issue uh, intellectually. You know, I voted the right way and all that stuff. But I didn't have a visceral appreciation for it until that phone call from my daughter. And what, it re- what I realized was that it was really a metaphor for our whole society, that our society refused to make eye contact with the homeless issue and with homeless people. So as a result of that, uh, a couple of years went by, and I hired a uh, a woman who uh, uh, ran for the city council uh, in uh, Marvin Brody's old district. Uh, was defeated by Bill Rosendahl, and uh, and her loss was my gain because I offered her a job to be my mental health deputy. And mental health, having something to do with homelessness. There's an intersection there. There's a debate about how much of an intersection, but there is an intersection there. She quickly became uh, a, a, a homeless, my homeless deputy. And uh, and I, I, combined with that phone call from my daughter and Flora Gil-Krysoloff, who was my deputy, uh, and under the, I think Elisa Belenkoff katz is here. She's my former chief of staff and now works with me at UCLA. We made homelessness a visceral issue in my office, a priority issue. And in 2007, we launched a pilot program here in Skid Row to demonstrate that housing homeless and providing services to homeless persons was less expensive than leaving them on the street. You might ask why. Because if they're on the street, they're going to land in jail a dozen times a year, they're going to land in the emergency room at least a half a dozen times a year, and every time they cross that property line, ka it costs the taxpayers money. And it, not that if it was even if it was more expensive, the, the morally right thing to do would have been to help the homeless. But to make a, a business argument to some of my colleagues on the board of supervisors, this was a very important thing. We were able to demonstrate that after two, two years, two and a half years of that pilot. Um, I tried to scale that program up. Uh, we actually housed about 150 people over two and a half, three years, and we got the report. It's cost-effective. It's, it works, we had a 92% retention rate, that is nobody went back on the street, one person died and one person went back to their home outside of town. So I tried to get the Board of Supervisors to, uh, to scale it up to 500, and the plan was we'll do that and then we'll scale it to 5,000. That's at a time when the chronically homeless population was 15, 20,000 people in the, count, in, in the county. I couldn't get a second vote, I could not get could not get a I, I couldn't get a second to a motion to scale the project up, and, and, and there were a lot of reasons for it, and that's, they're, they're unimportant right now. But the bottom line is, that for a variety of reasons, we lost a decade. If we had scaled that up, uh, we, we would be we'd still have a homeless problem, but we would have put a dent in it. At least now, largely because of you folks, the people of the of the county, who have now seen homelessness close up in your neighborhoods. Because once the city started to disperse the homeless from Skid Row, they started ending up all over town. And homeless people are no less smart than the rest of us. The view from Pacific Palisades is a lot better than the view from 5th and San Julian in Skid Row. And so they ended up everywhere. And, and uh, suddenly it became a political problem for city council members and mayors in the 88 cities and the supervisors. And then the public was willing to put their money where their mouth was. And you voted for a, a, a sales tax, a quarter cent sales tax increase in the county-wide and in the city, a $1.2 billion housing bond. Now, here's my, one of the advices I would give a 26 or a 66-year-old politician. Don't promise what you can't deliver. Don't overpromise, underpromise, Under-promise and look like a genius when you've over uh, it was a big mistake to say to anybody, "You vote for this, and we will end homelessness in five years we 're not going to end homelessness in five years it's, we didn't This problem didn't happen overnight, and it 's not going to get solved overnight and The sooner we all level with the public about that, uh, the more we'll be on the same page going forward
1: so just to be clear, is it problem managed you know when 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 my, you know, Oki ancestors, you know, and and their cousins were sleeping on the streets in the 40s and in the 70s. I mean, we're gonna have this in 50, another 50 and 70 years. Well, one of the things,
0: we're doing a paper now at UCLA, um, at the Center for, the Luskin Center for History and Policy, um, on the history of homelessness in LA. And one of the things is, you know, I mean, it's not a shock, but it's nice to have it validated. We've had homelessness here since the, mid to late 1800s. Um, and The nature of the homeless population, the demographic of the homeless population has changed over time. Uh, one thing that hasn't changed over time or, or in recent decades is uh, that there, there's a disproportionate number of African Americans who are homeless. Of the homeless population, a, a disproportionate number are, are African Americans. Um, and this gets to the issue, you know, the, the structural racism that we have and, and, and the policies that we've had for decades that, I, I mean, it's, it's, you have to take the holistic approach. It, it involves incarceration policies, it involves uh, discrimination in hiring, it involves discrimination in housing, uh, the whole nine yards. So any solution to the homeless problem has got a. It's it's not there's not a silver bullet. You you do this, you pass a measure, and you're going to end it. You got to attack the root causes of the homelessness, and unless you do that, you're you're going to be destined to to have homelessness um, be a part of our lives for a long long time. And there there is a way to do that. Uh, and. Uh, And now the resources are available, certainly not enough resources available. The one thing I would say that would be of interest to this audience, I think, uh, is that the fastest growing demographic among our homeless are people who've been evicted from their their apartments. Uh, People who can't afford uh, to pay rent, sometimes for illicit reasons they've been kicked out of their apartments, but sometimes it's for failure to pay rent. and the minute they don't pay rent, the landlord is on them like a ton of bricks and out they go. And in the city of Los Angeles, the odds are that they're living in a rent-controlled apartment. The minute they're kicked out of that apartment, now they have to go fend for themselves, looking for an apartment that is decontrolled and is market rate. And the folks in this city who are living in rent-controlled apartments, for the most part, cannot possibly pay what the market rate uh, demands. So. We have two housing economies in this, in this town and in this country. There's the market rate economy and there's the affordable economy. And so when people come to you and say, this is a supply and demand problem, all we got to do is build more apartment units and the price will come down. Price will not come down. And there have been enough academicians now and economists who say, no, no, no. We, we, we need more housing, but we need more affordable housing, not more market rate housing. They're, the city of LA today uh, is building more apartment housing than at any time since 19, in any single year since 1981. So there's been a lot of a lot of construction going on, but the market will determine what the market will will sustain. The people we have to worry about, and I will finish mm-hmm. with this, are the people we have to worry about, are the 42% of the people of LA County of households in LA County who have incomes of less than $60,000. And half of those people, close to half of those people, have household incomes of less than $30,000. You do the math. If the average apartment, two-bedroom apartment in LA is $1,800 a month, what's that? That's uh, 21000 dollars a year, and you're making $40,000 a year? Any, the, the, uh, the standard is that anybody who's spending more than 30% of their income on housing is, is rent-burdened. Is, is, is housing cost burden. This is, this is the issue of our time right now, is what do you do to protect the people who don't have sufficient incomes to be able to compete for a housing unit in this marketplace, in the free marketplace? And we don't have the time to go into it, but it's, it's, there are ways to do it, but it would take some political courage to exact concessions, so when we, if, if we, and I believe we will, increase zoning in certain areas of California, not I hope not on a one-size-fits-all approach, but to, for each city to strategically figure out where they want to accommodate more density. But in exchange for increasing the density on my property, for example, you if you double the density on my property or quintuple you've just increased the value of my property by fivefold or, or triple, whatever it is. Get something in return from me for that. I didn't earn that increased value. Get something in return. So if you're an apartment developer who wants to get a zone change to allow you to build, instead of t- 10 units, you wanna build 50 units, then of the, f- of the 40 additional units you're entitled to, take 50% of them and reserve it for, underwrite it, subsidize it, for affordable housing for people who are in that $60,000 annual household income and below, don't just give it away. Yeah. Uh, it's an asset that we, as the, the government, can control, and we can exact a price for it that it has a social value to it. That's that's been my pitch.
1: Thank
0: you. thank you. Okay, go to Sarah. All, All right. <laughs> uh,
3: we are
2: going to do questions now. Um, and first, let's have another round of applause for yeah. thank you. Robert Aronson. hi Seb. Um Before my question, I wanted to give you a compliment. When I used to work with your staff back in the 80s, uh, Ginny Kruger and Maria Chan-Castillo, I also worked mostly with your environmental deputy. And you were the first to have an environmental deputy, uh, even before Ruth Galanter, and I think that's pretty amazing. You know, back in the 80s, you had an environmental deputy, and no one else did, that's great. Um, <laughs> my question is, um, the city is doing road diets now. Road, road diets, diets. Yeah. so we've got massive densification and road diets to make it even more difficult to drive your car they're trying to force us into public transportation this every time we get asked to vote we support new tax increases for public transportation but the public transportation is really not good enough now to use as opposed to a car in LA Aren't they putting the cart before the horse by squeezing us with densification, squeezing us with road diets, but not having enough good public transportation?
0: There's no question uh, that the infrastructure of the city can't handle its current population. It's certainly not going to be handling a 50% increase or whatever. But uh, by the same token, um, failure to expand the infrastructure, including the housing infrastructure, doesn't mean you're not going to see more people coming to town. Right, uh, we, we've had in-migration uh, in times of housing shortages in the past, and uh, and so the intelligent thing to do is to find ways to provide more housing, more affordable housing, uh, and uh, and one of the things to do is not not to exacerbate the problem by allowing people to demolish existing affordable housing, and not to make it easy for people to evict tenants. Uh, you know, and one of the things that the county is doing with Measure H, the quarter-cent sales tax that passed, is to provide money to people who are uh, one paycheck away or one rent rent check away from being evicted. You know, to give them bridge financing so they can get through a month or two months of of economic downturn in their own lives. As for road diets, um, you know, uh, <laughs> you know, I believe that the city has. Has has done a lot of road dieting. Every every street between my house and UCLA has some construction going on, and uh, <laughs> you know, two two lane streets have been narrowed down to one lane streets for for weeks, and no work has been done on on the. Yeah, you know, so I, I, I'm actually tempted to make a public records act request of the city department of transportation for every communication about all these construction projects to see if there's a conspiracy. I'm being facetious now, <laughs> for the record. Um, <laughs> I'm I'm not averse to road diets, but again, like everything else, you got to do it in the right place. You got you got, you got to use common sense. Uh, you can't be ideological about it. You, you can't, you know, the single-family home is not a crime. You, know, you don't need to get rid of every single-family home in California. You don't have to end its its existence on the, in the zoning map. Uh, you don't have to put a a a, a, a bike path on streets that are not equipped to handle it, Uh, but there are streets where they are equipped to handle it, and uh, and I'm all for it. The one thing I'm also for, and this doesn't make me popular with bicyclists uh, or people who ride the scooters, but I'm not running for anything, so I I can say what I believe, is if they want to be Treated like motor vehicles, then they have to behave like motor vehicles, and uh, and and not, you know, zigzag across the streets. And and uh, I was sitting at a wedding a year and a half ago, and a friend of ours, and there's a guy sitting next to me at the table, and he says, uh, "Don't, don't mean to talk shop with you, uh, <laughs> so don't." Uh, <laughs> uh, but uh, what do you think of these scooters? This was when the these scooters were first popping up. And like a good politician, I said, uh, why do you ask? <laughs> and he said, well, I'm a facial reconstructive surgeon at Cedars-Sinai, and there are 10 of us, and I see three patients a week where I have to do reconstructive surgery because they face-planted because they're reckless driving of the scooter on the sidewalk or on the street or whatever. And if I'm doing three, he says, and there are nine other guys, or, or doctors, not necessarily guys, uh, that means 30 a week at Cedars. That's just Cedars. That stuck with me.
3: Uh, hi, my name is Francis Yasmeen Motiwala. Uh, you could say that here in 2020, I'm the face of the anti-establishment
0: challenger. I'm running for Congress here in the 34th Congressional District. And
1: I've uh, decided to run when I realized that my current representative was taking a lot of money from corporate interests that he says he wants to regulate um, that I don't feel comfortable with. And,
0: uh, yeah, so, but I've also realized running for office how expensive it is. So I was wondering if you could speak to the influence of money and moneyed interests on politicians. How big of a uh, uh, you know, urgent crisis is it and what should be, you think should be done? I think it's a terrible crisis, uh, a, a, an acute crisis. Um, Citizens United, uh, that Supreme Court decision, is a disaster, and it has changed politics. You know, for as long as it's going to be on the books, it probably will be on the books for some time. Um, I'm a. i be- am you know, I when I first ran, uh, uh, I was not a believer in campaign limitations. I, I was a believer in in timely reporting of campaign contributions, so that if, if I took money from, from an oil company that was seeking an oil drilling permit in my district, uh, my constituents ought to know about it. And as a practical matter, I wouldn't take money from an oil company at all, but I certainly would take one that had, had a pending permit in my district. Transparency and disclosure would have been the important thing. I, I became more of a, of a in my later years, a, a supporter of campaign limitations, and I actually wrote the measure that still governs in the county. Uh, the, the, there's a limit to what you can accept from any one individual uh, or company. Um, it's more complicated than if that It's not the point you're driving at, but, but you, you have to level the playing field so that somebody like yourself, uh, who, or like my, myself, when I first ran, I didn't have a lot of rich friends. Uh, I had a mother-in-law. Uh, who lent me $1,000 uh, and a couple of other friends who lent me $1,000 and the, the deal was, you, know, you lend me 1000 bucks. if I win, I'll pay you back, if I don't win, you've lost 1000 mm-hmm. uh, yeah, bucks. But I was massively outspent. Money is not sufficient. It's necessary but not sufficient. You don't have to match anybody dollar for dollar. Look at Amy Klobuchar, okay, tonight. Uh, you can can win if you you have a message, uh, if if you connect with the people, if you work hard, uh, and you gotta be lucky. You know, there's an old saying at the Fairfax High School locker room, never forget it. It's a luck is where preparation meets opportunity. So you gotta be prepared uh, for the opportunities as they present themselves. But yeah, the system now is stacked against, especially if you're running for Congress, which is what? Almost four times larger than a city council district. Um, yeah. So, so
1: good forgive, luck. So forgive me, Zev. One of your fans was asking me, you know, why, why, why aren't you running for president? The local officials are, are now viable. You can be yeah. a mayor of a s- place as small as South Bend, Indiana, which had fewer Not, people than a council district you know, here in L.A. You know,
0: I was thinking about that over the weekend. You're the same uh, age as
1: Elizabeth uh, Warren, Zev. Yeah. yeah. Um, you, you're you're seven years younger than Biden Sanders. Yeah. Um, those guys, I mean, are you, are you waiting to gain more wisdom and experience, uh, you know, to catch up with them? Maybe, What's going on? M-
0: maybe my, my ego isn't as big as you thought it was. Uh, yeah. I did, it did cross my mind, uh, South Bend, and I've been to South Bend a bunch of times, um, uh, I just leave it at that. Uh, <laughs> uh, it's 100,000 people. My supervisorial district was 2 million people. It never would have occurred to me to run for president, but then I'm, I don't speak nine languages. And I mean, he's a very talented guy. I don't want to make, make light of it. Uh, he, you know, Pete Buttigieg is a, is a very uh, talented guy. He didn't get to this point for nothing. So, uh, My name is Matt Tinoco, and I'm
1: curious about, I want to talk about land use in particular in the city of LA. Mm-hmm. Uh, Uh, We have council members under investigation by the FBI, presumably, for their relationship being too close with uh, developers. But part of the reason they have that very close relationship is because of the, basically the fact that individual council members in the city of L.A. can do whatever they want on land use. Like, they can change the zoning to the point that they can. Mm -hmm. And the question I basically have for you is, I'm wondering if you, as you're reflecting on your time in L.A. power, and you see the city shape-shifting in front of you, I'm wondering if you think maybe, well, what are the merits of having individual council members have discretionary authority over land use in their districts? And maybe, do you think maybe they shouldn't have that, given to see that invites corruption as we see going on right now?
0: In my day in the city council, uh, there, there wasn't that kind of deference to council members in their own districts. And uh, that's why we had Prop U, is because uh, when Browdy and I were trying to control development in Westwood and Brentwood, our colleagues didn't support us, and uh, and so we said, screw you, we'll go over your heads and let the people decide. Um, over the year, and I'm not sure that it's still that uh, that there's still the kind of difference that that uh, that you're describing. I, I I read the papers the way you do, but. Uh, you know, there used to be a saying that a councilman would defer to another councilman in his own district unless it had, unless the project had citywide implications, and that usually meant uh, the citywide implications was usually defined as well that developer is somebody that is my friend or he's going to contribute to my next fundraiser. You know, that that became the definition of, you know, of uh, citywide uh, deference. Here's my here's my uh, philosophy on this. Uh, There is too much discretionary authority given to the city generally. I believe that in a perfect world, what you should do is lay out what the zoning is on every piece of which it already is laid out. But lay it out, uh, lay out the zoning on every piece of property, and stick with it. No discretion unless it's really minor, uh, you know, side yard, six-inch side yard, uh, you know, something. But if you're allowed to build a three-story retail building or commercial building, that's all you get. You can't come into the city and ask for more. So let me tell you, there's a planning director in the city uh, a few years back, Gail Goldberg, a good friend uh, and and an excellent planning director. Uh, She was quoted in the LA Weekly, I believe it was in the LA Weekly, in one of the great quotes of all time. She said that in most cities in America, the value of a piece of land is determined by the zoning of that land. In Los Angeles, the value of a piece of land is determined by what a developer thinks he can get the zoning to be. <laughs> and I'll tell you what I mean by that, without being too specific. Um, There's was, there was a property not far from my house, a commercial property, uh, developer bought it for twice as much as it was worth. And everybody in the real estate community said, don't know why he would pay that kind of money for a piece of property that's only worth half as much. Well, the next thing he did was he went into the seat of councilman, got got him to support a rezoning of that property, double the density on that property, in violation of the master plan and of the zoning on that property. It was approved by the city council, signed by the mayor, and then the neighborhood got together and sued, and they're called nimby's. Not in my backyard. I'm sorry, they're not nimby's. They have to, you know, they they have to abide by the rules, and a developer, a commercial developer, or a commercial property owner ought to have to abide by the rules too. And what's gone on in this city, and what you're referring to, is there's too much. The discretion comes when somebody, when, when a developer or a property owner comes in and says. I know my property is zoned for this, but I want to do this, and you've got to get a zone change. you got to get an ordinance. You've got to go through the Planning Commission. And at each one of those steps, you've got discretionary approvals and, and leverage is sometimes exacted. And that's, and that's what's happened to this city. It's unfortunate. You don't see that in every city in America. You don't see that in every city in LA County. But in Los Angeles, it's become a culture. And I have to say it started in the days when I was there, probably before I was there. Uh, but I believe, and people in the real estate business are so pleasantly surprised to hear me say this, once you have the zoning, it, 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 you know, if you have the zoning, you should be allowed to go into the building department, get your building permit, and build what the zoning allows. You shouldn't have to go beg from your councilman or from your mayor to be able to build something. But when you ask for more than you're entitled to, that's a different story. And, and nobody should criticize a, a community for standing up for the law, for the efficacy of a land use plan, which they spent a lot of time working with developers to try to create.
3: Hi, my name is Deborah Silverman, and my question is also about housing. So um, the folks in Los Angeles, the city of Los Angeles and Los Angeles County have shown a tremendous willingness to vote to tax, we've taxed ourselves, so that we can create opportunities to construct housing. However, what you were exactly talking about, neighborhoods won't permit the housing to be built. We can't find suitable land for it when land is allocated. Uh, People protest in every single neighborhood. People don't want homeless people living in their neighborhoods, but they're unwilling to commit their neighborhoods to building housing. And I just wonder if you could talk a little bit about what one, what could do about that. And also, do we need some sort of legislative mandate that, that requires that neighborhoods, that all neighborhoods in Los Angeles, not just that we shove the housing in places that, you know, we know that people don't have as much political clout and can't say no, but that each neighborhood in Los Angeles has to bear bear some of the responsibility of being a good citizen and taking in that housing.
0: So you asked several questions, and I'll try to be quick in in my response. Uh, Number one, uh, I think the city council has imposed on itself a a goal of trying to house homeless, to create at least one or two homeless projects in each of their districts, for starters. And most of them have have fulfilled their their commitment on that score. That's not enough. Uh, my, you know, I, I built in my days between 2007 and the time I left office, seven or eight years later, uh, we built nearly 1,000 housing units for homeless people, for chronically mentally ill homeless persons. How did we do that? Well, one, one way we, and, and by the way, never had a NIMBY problem, not one. Uh, why? Because if you want to make a statement, then you try to build a, housing, a, a homeless housing project in Bel Air, or a drug rehab facility in Bel Air. You, and you, you'll be in court for 10 years, and you can make a statement. If you want to solve the problem, then you've got to be a little more intelligent about how you do it. One of the things that we pioneered, along with this organization out of Santa Monica called Step Up on Second, one of the one of the several homeless housing providers in, in Southern California. They're great. I now serve on their board in the spirit of, Full disclosure because I believe in what they do uh, they pioneered this concept of buying motels motels and hotels run down motels and hotels and repurposing them doesn't cost six hundred or seven hundred thousand dollars a unit to repurpose a motel that has been a den of iniquity uh, it, take, it takes hundred and fifty thousand dollars a unit, which is a lot of money, but it's a fraction of what the city is now spending on on some of their projects. And the great thing about motels is that they are in every community in Los Angeles. They are in Bel Air on Sepulveda Boulevard. They are in Westwood on Westwood Boulevard. They are in my neighborhood on Melrose and on Beverly and on Third Street. There are two motels within walking distance of my house. That would be great. I'd love them to be uh, permanent supportive housing uh, for homeless persons, including chronically mentally ill homeless people. And that's how we did it. And when the Prop H, measure HHH, which is the $1.2 billion city housing bond passed, I went to see the then chief administrative officer of the city and I said, this thing's gonna pass and you ought to look at buying up motels because as sure as I'm sitting here, I told him, I said, in a year, the LA Times is going to say, "Well, you passed this bill a year ago. What do you have to show for it? This bond issue. What do you have to show for it?" Well, it took them two years, but the Times did that story. It takes time to do that, but it's really it takes them far less time to repurpose these hotels. while you do the longer-term projects? And if you do it right, uh, you know when we we built one on on Sunset and Formosa, right up a, block, a mile up the street from my house, and. Uh, it was an old motel for 35 years. It was uh, a place where the prostitutes took their tricks. You remember the days when prostitutes paraded up and down Sunset Boulevard? You're too young to remember that, but. Uh, so, and we knew that. And, and uh, so when, when this became a homeless, uh, pr- permanent supportive housing project for chronically mentally ill homeless, we had the president of the neighborhood association. A neighborhood council came. The president of the chamber of commerce came. It was a celebration because they prefer to have that use there than what they had before. And I did this. I didn't do it. Step Up did it, and other agencies did it, all over the west side of Los Angeles and in the San Fernando Valley. That's the way to do it. And 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 I don't think it's difficult if if we if we want to solve the problem and not make a statement. Uh, I you know, I made a, I'll I'll finish with this, you know, my, my friend Herb Wesson, who's a city councilman for the 10th district and the president of the city council, got into a little problem with his constituents in Koreatown when he wanted to put one of the projects right in downtown Koreatown. And I said to Herb, I said, why did you pick that spot? Your district is, you know, 50 square miles or whatever it is. You could have found another place other than, you know, to to do it right in the main commercial core of Koreatown, and he said, "Well, if I, if I don't, if I don't go through with this, you know, how can I expect my colleagues to do to do it?" I said, "Well, you're not going to go through with this because eventually you're gonna you're gonna have to make a decision to change," which he ultimately did, and it was the right thing to do. Um, I have an old book uh, that I've used as my bible. It's uh, by Barbara Tuckman. Uh, it's called The March of Folly. And uh, she defines folly in a number of ways, but the one that applies to this is, faced with incontrovertible evidence that the course you are about to undertake is the wrong course, you pursue it anyway. <laughs> and uh, you know, I read that book about a third of the way into my public service career, and I said, I wish I'd read it the first day I got into office, because I've tried to guide myself accordingly. It doesn't mean I didn't make mistakes, I made plenty of them, but I made fewer of them when I tried to look at it through that prism. I think that NIMBYism has become a scapegoat for everything. And you know NIMBYs have real problems, too, and they have legitimate concerns, too. And our challenge as political leaders is to do something without arousing unnecessary uh, opposition. Sometimes you have to. When I built the Orange Line, uh, in the San Fernando Valley, I had to take on the biggest orthodox synagogue in the San Fernando Valley. I, I had no choice. And I, I finally just said, Rabbi, we'll have to agree to disagree. And if they could, they would have hung me uh, in front of that synagogue. Uh, but sometimes you gotta do that. But you make every effort to avoid those kinds of conflicts. And uh, and while you hear a lot about the NIMBYs, what you're not hearing about is all the projects that are being built. And the county is putting stuff out on the street now that is quite, you know, th- they're on their way to doing the right thing. Um, and I think it's time for our press and our editorial pages to give credit sometimes where credit is due. This is a very complicated problem. I'm gonna, this is my last sentence. A complicated <laughs> problem. It will not be solved overnight. And, uh, and we just ought to you know, be constructively patient, you know, anxiously patient about the, the pace at which we're going. But we, we can get there. Thank, Thank you, you very All right. much. Thank you.
3: Let's have a round of applause.